Philippians chapter 2 for our Bible study. If you don't have the notes, they're in the bulletin. Or the ushers have some in hand as they move through. Just raise your hand and they'll hand it to you. While they're taking care of that, let me uh, just go walk with me for a little bit. We're talking about a unique gift that you can give this morning. I know that if you start doing the internet search, you can find all the different ideas about here is the great gift. In fact, you can get the best gifts for kids this year, for your spouse, for your teens, for your parents. It is loaded with all different types of gift ideas that you can get for the Christmas season. And just as if kids need another 121 gifts. But there's all kinds of stuff. Let me give you a thought this morning from the Word of God from Philippians chapter 2 about finding and giving that which is probably one of the most unique gifts that somebody can give this Christmas season. Now, I'm not talking about the gift of salvation. We talked about that last week, and that is important. But this is something you can do on a one-to-one relationship with somebody. I would encourage you to give the gift of biblical friendship. Not just friendship. Biblical or godly friendship. I find that talked about a lot in Philippians chapter 2. If you remember the setting, Paul is writing from prison. He is writing about 10 years after he has ministered to the church of Philippi. His theme of this entire four chapters is joy and rejoicing, coming from a man sitting in prison who's going through hardships, writing to people who are facing difficulties, with co-workers, one who has almost died. He keeps on talking about rejoicing. Chapter 2 continues that theme. You'll find at least twice in the chapter he talks about his joy, how you can make me rejoice, and how we can rejoice together. But the focus of the second half of chapter 2 is going to be upon godly friends. Now, what's interesting is see the flow of the text. The flow of the text that we looked at last week, he is talking in the first part of the chapter about how you and I can really, really make an impact upon the world. He talks about the essence of Christianity. He talks about the idea of what it involves, what Christianity is all about, and that is that on an earthly level, that love for God, love for others. Then he gives the example. Going into the, into the second part of chapter 2, starting with about verse 5 through 12, he gives the example of the ultimate example of somebody who really made an impact, that's Jesus Christ. Then he gives, in, chap- in verses right around 12, 13, 14, 15, he gives a different 16, he, I think is included there, he gives different commands or exhortations. Now, for those of you who would say, well, that's easy because you're talking, you're talking about people who are like Jesus. They can, they can live godly. Now you're talking about the apostle. He gets in, gives us different people's stories from verses 17 to the end of the chapter that provide a secondary example of how to live in a way of godliness that could really make an impact and be a good friend to other people. And so he gives us all this detail as he's going through. Now, there's a, a lot of information. Let me read it and then let's, let's dissect it. We're going to start in verse 17. Yea, and uh, if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice, or I joy, and rejoice with you all. For the same cause also do you joy and rejoice with me. But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy shortly unto you, that I also may be of good comfort that I may know your state. For I have no man like-minded who will naturally care for your estate. For all seek their own, not the things which are Jesus Christ. But you know the proof of him, that as a son with the father, he hath served with me in the gospel. Him, therefore, I hope to send presently, so soon as I shall see how it's going with me. But I trust in the Lord, that I also myself shall come shortly. Yet, I supposed it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, companion in labor, fellow soldier, your messenger, and he that ministered to my wants. For he longed after you all, and was full of heaviness, because that you had heard that he had been sick. For indeed he was sick, nigh unto death. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I sent him therefore the more carefully, that when you see him again you may rejoice, and that I may be the less sorrowful. Receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness. Hold such in reputation, because for the work of Christ he was nigh unto death, not regarding his life, to supply your lack of service toward me. That doesn't seem like it really fits, but man, is there truth here. Truth about joy in life. Oh, there's truth like this. We learn exactly how communication was done in the New Testament. We know that it wasn't done the way it was done in our world. Phil was sharing in Sunday school about the difference in the culture and the jungle. Well, the difference in time is just as much in different cultures. One of our fellows was telling me here a couple weeks ago that they were talking with a co-worker. A few who are a little bit older were talking with a young co-worker, and they were talking about black and white TV. And the young lady was, wow, you mean they recorded and did all the sets in black and white? 
when they did it. And they were trying to explain. And after a bit, she got a little bit perturbed. She says, you're just joking with me. There wasn't such thing. You know, there was never black and white TV. It was always color. <laughs> no. And there wasn't 170-some channels either at one time. You know, sometimes we, we, get, we get ourselves thinking, well, the world operated the way that it operates today. No, they didn't have the cell phone. They didn't even have the rotary phone. They didn't even have the party line. Okay? Back then, he says, here's how we communicated. We sent messengers. We wrote letters. And so he talks and gives us some data that helps us to understand some of the delays between the epistles. There's some good information that we could glean from it. That's not our focus this morning. We could talk about this fact that the New Testament saints, they experienced joy. This idea that being a Christian and serving the Lord, you have to be miserable. You have to sacrifice everything and you need to walk around with that sad face and you need to eat really dry, crusty bread that's near unto moldy. That's not what we talk about in the Bible. That's not the idea. And Paul talks about serving the Lord. There's great joy. There's great rejoicing. It's not about the idea of inflicting personal pain or sorrow. It's not about the idea of being miserable and saying, oh God, if, you know, you, uh, wherever, wherever I, I want to go least in the world, that's where you're going to send me. That's not Christianity. That's not the idea that God has in mind. God wants us to rejoice. In fact, he wants our joy to be overflowing, Jesus says in John chapter 15. That if we abide in his words and his words abide in us, that's going to be the case. And so God wants us to have rejoicing, but as we heard in the Sunday school hour, it's all tied into following the will of God. Which brings me to another thought. With Paul's Christianity, it was real. It wasn't just a church-going Christianity. It wasn't just a Sunday morning thing. It wasn't just once in a great while in Advent or Lent seasons. Rather, his Christianity was one that impacted his everyday life all the time. You want to see something interesting? When Paul made plans, he says that he submitted his plans and his timetable to the Lord's will. He says it twice in the text. He said, as we read, I trust in the Lord to send Timothy. In other words, if the Lord will, we shall do this or that. He mentions again about, about the idea of whether he's going to come to them in verse 24. Whether I come shortly or not, I'm not sure. I'm trusting in the Lord. So he submits his calendar as he plans his calendar to the will of the Lord. We ought to have that thought as we plan 2017. But something else that strikes me is all of his labor. It's a practical Christianity that he labored to minister to these other people, to serve others. He came to, like Christ, to help these people. Like Christ came to seek and to serve that which was lost. Here's Paul saying that I am willing to be offered, he says, on the sacrifice and your service of your faith in verse 17. It's literally the idea I would be a human sacrifice. In other words, I could suffer martyrdom for you people. He said, I'm willing to do that. I am willing to do whatever it takes for your faith to be established, for you to have heard the truth. And he's proven it thus far. He's in jail because he shared the word with them. And so Paul's Christianity was very, very practical. I think this is a really key thought out of this text. He points out to me that friends, godly friends, are very, very important in life, but they are also very rare. I'm not talking about friends, period. I'm talking godly friends. I'm talking biblical friends. Those who, as he describes Timothy, he says, I have no man like-minded. And look what he says. He says, after he says about him being like-minded, who will naturally care for your state, verse 20. But in then verse 21, he summarizes and said, my life has, has shown me this. God inspiring me, that makes this a fact, all the idea is that the great numbers seek whose own desires? Their own. He says they were after more about themselves. And he's encompassing a lot of Christendom, a lot of born-again believers in that statement that they are not about doing the will of God. They are more about doing their own will. And he says Timothy is a rare breed. He is one that I really treasure because he gives me godly friendship. Some of you know about this fellow. He's a kook. He's a nut. We all know about that. We know about his crazy things. They put it in film. We've heard all that. But Howard Hughes was the billionaire of the years of some of us growing up. He made this comment towards the end of his life. He made the comment about friends. He said these words, I'd give it all up for one good friend. I read about the story about another gentleman. Some of you have heard about him. He was one of the first Olympians from America that went and broke the racial barrier. And he went, Jesse Owens went to Europe 
and competed in the 36 Berlin Olympics. You remember who got in power just a couple years before this? Adolf Hitler. What did he think about blacks? Yeah, they were an inferior race. In fact, he thought most Americans were inferior. The only ones were the Aryan race. And so when Jesse Owens gets there, one of his major competitors that they predicted <clears throat> would be running close to him in, in all the track and field events was this Lux Long, who represented Germany. The two of them became fast friends. In fact, they gave each other pointers for different things, such as the long jump. And as a result of the instruction that Lux Long gave Jesse Owens, he, this was his weaker of events. He qualified the first round, the second round, and ended up winning the gold medal in it. And he attributed to some of that coaching he got during those couple weeks while they were there, and they became fast friends. That was the last time he saw him after they left the Olympics. Jesse Owens said that shortly thereafter he found out that Lux Long was in deep trouble for befriending a black man. In fact, he ended up at the, you know, position at the front where he would surely be in a position that he would give his life, and he died. He died in the war cause. Years later, Jesse Owens made this comment. Talking about his Olympic gold medals and the other tributes, he said this, you can melt all the medals and cups I have and they wouldn't be worth the plating or would, would be the plating on the 24-carat friendship I had with that man. He thought that that friendship was one of the most valuable things he ever possessed in his life that helped him in his field. Listen, your field, your athletic field is Christianity. That's what you've been called to if you're born again. You've been called to serve Jesus Christ first and foremost. You need a friend who will give you pointers. You need a friend who is going to help you in this field of serving the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says they are rare and far between. Not only that, but this passage shows us how to become one of them. It says that it is so important for us to do it, and it gives us specifics. By the examples of Paul, Timothy, Epaphroditus, we can glean from this text of their life and their interaction how to become a godly friend to our kids. How to become a godly friend to our brothers and sisters, physically and spiritually. How to become a godly friend to the classmates. How do you do that? Seven thoughts I want to share with you quickly. Here they are. To become a really godly friend, here's what you need to do. One of those rare godly friends, it's this. First and foremost, you need to be an individual who seeks to exalt Christ above everyone and above everything. You need to make Christ more important than your grades, your sports, your business, your entertainment, your savings, your pension, your house, your Christmas gifts, your cooking, and your cookies. Christ needs to be the one because all seek their own. That's the, that's the typical description of individuals, he says. They seek their own, but you know, you know about Timothy. You know that he is one who seeks Jesus Christ, that above all, he is different. He puts Christ first. Can I rephrase it? If your friends were sitting at lunch, if your siblings were sitting around the supper table and they were talking about you and your name came up and they were talking about your Christianity, the way it appears and the way it acts away from this building, the way it appears and the way it acts when you're away from the crowd that you worship with, what would they say about you? Would they say this, put your name in, I think seeks to put Christ ahead above all else in their life. And the other's response, I think so too. Would they honestly say, would your kids say, my dad puts Christ first in his life. My mom, it's all about Christ. It's not about things. It's not about power. It's not about money. My friend, it's about Christ. It's not about sports or shopping or you name it. It's about Christ. He says, if we are going to be godly friends, this is where we start. We start by saying, what is my relationship with God Almighty? What is my closeness to Jesus Christ? Then number two. Number two, we make it a priority to help others. And this passage is filled with help. This passage has the Philippians providing help for Paul. He says that no other church communicated to me in chapter four. He says, but you only. 
And we know that there's help. He talks about in this text, we already read it. He said that that Epaphroditus, verse 25, he ministered to my needs. And he talks about that idea that Timothy was like to me a son taking care of a father. We understand the, the care, but I want you to go a step further with me. Because a lot of you do this. A lot of you provide help. You have helped and provided assistance hither and yon to individuals who might need some garbage taken down to the end of the lane. You might have provided assistance during some episode. Somebody had a fire, they had a flood, and you were there and you gave a hand. I'm talking about something much deeper and much more important. I'm talking about this, especially giving spiritual help. Above all types of help, focusing and saying, I'm going to give spiritual help to those who are my dearest friends. Those who are close to me. Those who are in my family, I want to give them assistance, not just with cleaning the house. That's important, moms, right? That the kids give help. Nobody said anything. Maybe you don't want them to help. But giving spiritual help to your parents, to your kids. But doing these types of things, like Paul did. Paul talks and he says that Timothy and I have a father-son relationship. And he talks about that in 1 Timothy where he says that he is my son in the faith. How did Paul give Timothy help? He shared the word with him. He gave him the gospel. This young man he trained, he mentored. That's godly friendship. Godly friendship is investing in another individual, giving them spiritual assistance. Oh, then... Paul helped the Philippians. He says in verse 17, I was ready to and am willing to be sacrificed and go out of my way for the service of your faith. And I rejoice in this. I have trained you. I have taught you. I have made giving spiritual help to you as a congregation, he said. I have made that a priority in my life. Yes, I want to provide physical help where it's needed, but first and foremost, I want to make sure that I'm assisting you spiritually. We talk about the Timothy and Epaphroditus. He says, you as a church, here he is. He ministered to me. Look what he says in verse 25. He's my brother, my companion. He is my fellow soldier. He is your messenger. He that ministered to my wants, here he is. He's helping me in so many ways. While I am sitting in prison, he is standing by my side. He is with me. He talks about later how everybody abandoned him. But here's an Epaphroditus. Here's an Epaphroditus who goes and makes it his life goal to help and to minister to somebody who is sitting in prison to help them out in their ministry. And so we have these examples through this passage. Let me ask you the pointed question. Do you, have you helped people spiritually? Have you done such things as shared the gospel with your coworkers? That's a godly friend. With your classmates? You, you tell them about Jesus and the reason for this season. As a godly friend, you're a in, in, uh, person who says, we will share prayer requests. I will pray for my friends, not just for their physical needs, which are important, but I'm going to pray for their spiritual needs. I was, I was impacted this morning. Hearing from Phil Scurrying about the different ministries and just thinking about the cultural challenge that he and his team must have in the jungles of Brazil being what we would call isolated, and how going through the culture shock, as he de demonstrated or illustrated, talking about the cutting ritual, and feeling almost nauseated by it, how important it is for us to be praying for those type of individuals who are on that front line. They're being godly friends to our missionaries, and praying for their stamina, praying for their strength as they try to minister and surely the enemy wants to discourage peoples through the cultures that, they are, that are strange to them. We need to be praying. We need to do that as godly friends. We need to share Bible challenges. Do you have a godly friend that what you do is you share your devotions? Do you have a godly friend that you say, hey, listen, let's together memorize verses. We have them in the, in the bulletin. And we're going to hold each other accountable because we know that the Word of God is so important that we are going to stay away from sin because of the Word of God. So let's encourage each other. Let's hold each other accountable to memorize the Scriptures. And we'll work on these verses for this next month, and we'll ask each other, do you do that as husband and wife? Husband as a spiritual friend, when's the last time you've, you've done that for your wife? Shared something from your study, from your Bible. Do you pray for the witness that somebody else is making? Do you encourage your friends to stand upright for Christ at school when they feel torn down. 
That at school as you pass, you give some each other some type of a spiritual high five to encourage them to keep going and they reciprocate. Do you as a spiritual godly friend point out when somebody's doing something wrong? You see the way that they in anger discipline their child. Are you a godly friend that you would come up and in grace and in mercy, not with a haughty spirit, but as a godly friend you would help them to grow out of uncontrolled anger? You see, he says in this text that this is godly friendship. It's one, you and me, first of all, making sure we're following Christ. Number two, that we are trying to help each other out spiritually to the point that, number three, we're going out of our way to do it. We're not just thinking about it. We're not just saying, okay, well, I'll do it if it's convenient. Not in this text. In this text, they go way out of their way. Look how he says, Timothy is precious to me. I am sitting in jail. He, he and Epaphroditus, they are my emotional, social bloodline right now. They are keeping me going. But he says, I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy shortly unto you that I may be of good comfort when I know about you. I have no one, no one standing with me who is like-minded, who will care the way that you care. All are seeking their own. Timothy, he is doing exactly what I have written here earlier, that he is seeking others, putting others first. And he says, you know all about him. You see him in verse 22. Him will I send unto you shortly or presently, so soon as I shall see how it goes. And then he talks about sending Epaphroditus. And both of these fellows he's relying upon. But he's saying, I'm willing to give them up to help somebody out. I'm willing to give up a co-laborer to help somebody out. I'm willing to give up, is it easy? To give up a, co a comrade in arms? A fellow laborer? Is it easy to say to somebody? And we joke about it, you know, yeah, yeah, get out of here type thing. We joked about that with Micah. But all of you know it wasn't easy to say goodbye to their family. Some of us have had to say, okay, let's go of our, let go of our kids. Some of you have let go your kids to say, go and serve. And you have sacrificed them that way. You've gone out of your way to be able to help them out. Timothy, he's willing to travel. Oh, by the way, let's remember. Timothy is traveling when there wasn't the buses, the trains, the planes. He is traveling in an era where he's going to have to go a long trip from Philippi to Rome. It's going to take weeks for him to do that, but he's willing to do it to minister to the Philippians. He was willing, Epaphroditus was, to leave the comfort of Philippi to go to Rome to visit and to associate with the prisoner. Do you realize what that would do to him socially in Rome? Do you realize what threats came to him? And while he's there, he says, he became extremely sick. You know how that is, traveling. The threat of it. And he says he became sick even unto death. But he was willing to do it. To go out of his way. To be able to help other people. Paul says, I am willing, willing to stretch myself. Now you say, okay, we should all do that. Well, then let me ask you a question, have you? Have you really stretched yourself? Have you? Given up an evening to pray with a friend. Oh, we would talk about it, we would say it, but have you done it? Have you, are you willing to give up several nights in, in or a night several weeks in a row to do a Bible study for someone? Have you been willing to give up that extra time to say, okay, I'll prepare a lesson so I can teach somebody, so I can teach some kids where we need? Wait, wait, my, my, my life is too busy. My life is so filled with all kinds of activities which necessarily aren't wrong, but where is the spiritual helping and going out of your way to assist people spiritually? What about the idea of going to help one of the widows who is lonely just to go and visit a widow or a shut-in who is spiritually feeling like they're in a desert? They just want some voice to talk to. Have you done it of late? Have you gone to the nursing home to encourage a believer in the Lord to help them out and to sing some songs with them? But you don't understand. I don't like the smells of those places. That's what I'm talking about, going out of your way. What I'm talking about being a godly friend, to go and visit somebody in prison. To go visit somebody who needs spiritual encouragement, but they may be in a shut-in unit. But they're a friend. 
They need somebody to stand by them spiritually and encourage them with forgiveness and comfort. But we're busy. We've got so much to get done between the trees and the shopping and the cooking. Then we wonder, as we get older, how come our kids don't reach out? Maybe it's by example they have learned to let the busyness put aside the spiritual laboring to one another. Let me take you a step further. Number four, you reciprocate. You reciprocate the care and showing that is, that is shown you by others. You reciprocate. Now, how does that happen? Paul has helped the Philippians out. We know that. We know that Paul has helped them out in the past. He talks about how he is there. We read in Acts 8, uh, 16. He was there. He was preaching. He was ministering. He went to jail for them. They reciprocated. They send Epaphroditus to try to minister to them. That's what they could do at that moment. They send some funds to assist him. They, sh they show concern. He says, you're the only church who's communicated in chapter 4. So the Philippians reciprocated to Paul's concern for them. They just didn't take it in. They gave it back to Paul. Paul then responds by saying, okay, you've been helping me spiritually. I'm going to help you again spiritually. I'll send you Timothy I'll send you Epaphroditus. Is it going to be easy for me? No, but this is going to be to your benefit. In fact, he says, when Epaphroditus comes back, I'm going to be rejoicing. Am I sorrowful that he left? Yes, but he says, I'm going to be rejoicing because I want to find out how you're doing. And it's going to cause me great joy and, and be helpful. And I won't sorrow anymore out of concern for you. And I know he's doing well enough. And so here they are, individuals who are working to give back to one another. Let me see if I can put it this way. The bottom line is every single one of us in this room needs ministering done to us. Every one of us. The Apostle Paul illustrates that he, the great apostle, the one who is inspired of a God to write more letters in the New Testament than anybody else, the one who we look to for so often for the spelling out of our doctrine, the Apostle Paul says, I needed ministering. I needed help. None of us is an island. None of us are that strong spiritually, emotionally, that we can do it on our own. We need spiritual, godly friends. We must have them. But the text also shows us that spiritually maturing people, people who are growing in the Lord, they focus more on serving others than being served. Isn't that what Jesus did? Came not to be ministered unto but rather to minister. Spiritually mature people look and say, I need to be ministering to others. Do I have a need? Yes. But I need to be helping others. And he that helps others is going to get help back. How do I know that? You reap what you sow. You reap selfishness, you're going to get emptiness. You're going to get emptiness. I guess it came to me this way. I'll never forget in seminary how we got chewed out several times by Dr. Jordan. He would come in and some man, he'd come in some days after somebody said something or preached something and, oh, man, he would, he would just absolutely rant and rave and chew all of us who were in the seminary class about something, you know, that some other preacher said. And he would vent and let us have his wrath. And um, I remember one day, oh, he came in. And it was really good. It was really good. But at the first, it was like, what are you talking about? He came in, and when he would be doing this, he would be scratching his head, and he would walk, and he would have his shirt sleeves up, and he would wham his, his Bible and books down. And he says, you seminarians make me sick. Well, good morning to you too. <laughs> He said, I am so tired, I want to close this school down. And then he went into his rant. What had happened, apparently, is some of the seminarians went and complained to him that he wasn't spending enough time with them. That they were used to their smaller churches that they came from, where they were able to sit down and have coffee or something with, most of them came from churches of like 40, 50 church, in the church, 75. And so most every Sunday, we could sit down and we could have coffee with the pastor. And he could talk, or at least once a week, we'd get together and he knew our kids' names and he knew everything around about us. Well, that's probably true. Except for Dr. Jordan had a church around that time of about 1,500 people. Okay? The seminarians were only going to be there for about three years. 
maybe four years, some of them 20 or 25, okay. But they were passing through. And so Dr. Jordan's philosophy was this. If you came and you are going to be in this seminary, you feel called of God, you're a, you're a maturing Christian. Make sense? You're not a neophyte, according to 1 Timothy 3, right? Yes, no? You got to be mature in the Lord. His thought was, of all the people in his church that should need the less hand-holding, hand it should be who? It should be the seminarians. They should be the ones helping him to minister to the other. I almost fell. Did you catch that? You've been waiting for it. Okay, so mark it down. This was the day I almost did it. Some of you are really laughing now. But he, he said that he depended upon the seminarians to help minister to the younger Christians instead of sitting back and saying, where's my share of the pat on the back? Where's my share of the burping? Where's my share of the coddling? And he was so angry. He was so upset to feel that added pressure when he was out witnessing and seeing people. And he was a great witness, great witness. He would, he would see people saved. He was trying to disciple people, trying to minister to the church. And here they were, the ones who were supposed to be the more mature class of individuals within his congregation, whining and crying about how they needed to be ministered to. His comment was very good at the end. His comment after he ranted and raved for a while was, You'll never make it in the ministry if you don't know how to minister to others and don't put other people to the test of ministering to you. I've never forgotten that. It's not about going to church and saying, well, you didn't, you, sitting over there. I'm not even looking at you. Yeah, so-and-so over there, they didn't shake my hand. So-and-so up there, they didn't talk to me today. It's not about that. I do not have the right to be putting people to the test of ministering to me. When we come for worship, our goal as maturing Christians is to do what? Not to be ministered to, but to minister to others. Oh, by the way, and when we minister to others, doesn't God minister to our hearts? Absolutely. Godly friends, maturing friends, are saying it's not about everybody look at me. Pamper me. Give me what I need. You know what that sounds like? A little child in a tantrum. And we're supposed to be more mature than that. Oh, by the way, do we need ministering at times? Does every one of us need some words of encouragement? Does every one of us need some help at times? A shoulder to cry upon? Somebody to pray with us? Absolutely. But maturing people. Maturing people are those who are saying it's about reaching out to others. It's about reaching out and giving to others because God has given to me, what does he say? What you have committed to faithful men, they should commit to others. It's the idea here of not being a taker. Oh, you know what takers are. You know how those, there's some people, they take. Yes? One pastor was telling me just recently that he said he got a phone call. This was just a few weeks ago. He got a phone call from somebody who was asking for gifts, financial gifts. And he said, I'm getting so tired of people just coming. He says, so we had projects around the church. And so I said to this person, tell you what, the church will willingly hire you for a few hours to do some project. It'll help us out. It'll help you out. I didn't call to get a job. I just called to get some money. <laughs> Taker. Yes? Taker. When we did our reenactment a few years ago, we give cookies out, yes? To anybody who's there. Taker. Somebody came in with a grocery bag and started emptying the trays so that they could use them to give as Christmas cookies to their family. A taker, yes? We did the clothing drive a few years ago, yes? You brought clothing in, we gave it to people in the community. A taker. Find out that we have some people come in who take loads of the clothing out so they could turn around and sell it at their garage sale. Taker, yes? Come to church on Sunday mornings and expect everybody to cater to them. Get involved in a church by not giving out. Come week after week, but never minister to other people. Never take a focus in saying, okay, I'm going to do prayer time. Youth group, youth group, Pastor Art, give us lots of activities, give us lots of fun. When you're asked to reciprocate. 
When you're asked to give back out, disappear into the woodwork. When you're asked to minister. When you're asked to teach. When, you're, when you are encouraged to serve in some capacity. No, we're too busy. He says, that's not maturing Christianity. Maturing Christianity is individuals who realize that we are a body and we are all supposed to contribute to the ministry of the body. We do not sit and take and take and take. That's godly friendships. Godly friendships realize that I am supposed to be giving to others. I am to reciprocate. As I've been ministered to, I minister to others. Number five, you learn to communicate. You as a godly person, you say, I communicate to others. Now, we know how they communicated. They had less opportunity, less advantage of communicating than we do. We've got so much. I mean, what a blessing for those of you who have children serving on the mission field. What a blessing to have Skype. What a blessing to be able to have phones that go internationally. What a blessing when you have kids or family members serving across the nation and you can still communicate. We are very, very privileged. And yet for all the communication... Sometimes the substance is gone, is it not? Sometimes I'm amazed how little communication is actually done. I, 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 I'm, I'm just absolutely amazed by this, and I don't think it's wrong and evil and sinful. But I'm still amazed by how many people you see in a restaurant, families sitting together for a night out, and what are all them doing? They're on their cell phones. They're on their cell phones. I'm amazed by walking and seeing people go on a date, and while they're on a date, they're talking with all the other people around. You know, I'm amazed by that. I'm amazed that says, okay, when Deb and I do a date, when she finally decides to take me out, because I won't do that, okay, so she takes me out, I would be amazed if she's doing other, you know, talking to all kinds of people. Now I am being the taker. <laughs> Communication, right? Communication is so important. And it's got to be more than just think about it. I bet you, I bet you this room, if I asked this question, if I asked it this way, how many of you were planning to write one of our missionaries this month? Bet you many of you would. How many did? What about the importance of communication? True story. Emperor Frederick decided he would do an experiment. He wanted to know what was the original language of the human race. He was convinced it was Latin, <laughs> okay, or German, uh, where he was from. He wanted to know if it was Greek or Hebrew. So he did this experiment. They took 12 children who were infants, took them away from the, the mothers. The orders given to the nursemaids to these 12 children was never speak to them. Give them their needs, but never speak to them. No words. As they grow, we will see what is the original language that's developed between the children. The historic fact is, within 13 months, all of the children died. No communication. Why is that? God created us to be creatures of communication. And without that, what would we be? Isolated? Depressed? Lose Lose the lack of wanting to live because without communication, we don't know if anybody loves, cares. So the communication is so essential. What about your godly friendship communication? When is the last time you wrote another teen in the youth group a note of saying, hey, I really appreciate this about you? When is the last time that you connected as a godly friend with your kids? A daddy-daughter time. When's the last time you went on a date as a couple? You're supposed to be the most godly, spiritual influence that your spouse could have is you. When's the last time you two just went away and talked about you and talked about the Lord? What about the idea of communicating with a missionary? The idea of communication is essential to friendships. Now, the issue becomes, what kind of words should we share? And we all know the importance of words. We know how words can destroy, discourage. And we also know, by the way, let me throw this out. We also know the inadequacy of email communication and texting. Yes? Are there misunderstandings? Yes. So, 
the verbal, the facial communication is so critical, so important. And so we know, we know stories. We know of Senator Towers out of Texas a few years back. We know about his plane crash. Here he was, NASA um, um, astronaut, went into politics, did real well with politics. We know all the story, but we know what happened to him. He and 23 other people flying in a plane and a crash and everybody was killed. In the, the uh, research done afterwards, here's what they discovered. That when the, on the propeller, there's a certain gearbox that was rubbing up against the cogs were rubbing. The one cog was made of stronger steel alloy than the other cog and just wore the other one down. It was like a file on it over a period of time. And it didn't get caught, and eventually it just wore it down so it became non-functional. Don't words do that to us? Strong words, don't they wear us down? Strong words, you know what I mean. Some of you grew up in a home where it was harshness. It just wore your spirit down. It discouraged you. In fact, that harshness from your mom or dad made you even wonder about God's care. You've experienced that. Some of you have experienced that harshness that comes from a, an employer. That just, the, the voice and the anger that just, I don't want to go to work. You know what that's like. You, you've had teachers that did this. They were harsh. You couldn't wait to get out of that grade. That happened to me first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth. <laughs> it happens. So what words are important? Here's what somebody put together. They said the six most important words, a phrase of six words, would be this. I admit I made a mistake. <laughs> You're never hearing it, Deb. Uh, Deb, oh, let me, Deb, I thought I made a mistake but last week, but I was wrong. So uh, <laughs> that's the way most of us operate. The five most important words, this person said, are these. You did a good job. When's the last time you said that to somebody? When's the last time you said that to your kids? When's the last time you told your parents that? Or your sibling? Godly friends do. The four most important words, what do you think? Now, after they pass out, you help them up and you mean it. Three words, I would have said I love you, but they, this, in this study they said, after you please, putting others first. Impacting words. Two most important words. Thank you. Most important word. The same idea. Okay. It's going to be others. Then they, in the study they said, the least most important word that is overused. Yeah. Yep. I, me, my. Words that we should be working on. Communication that says, okay, let's communicate in a godly way with one another. Number six, someone who genuinely appreciates and commends those you call friends. Watch what he says. He says in the text, he says, verse 28, I sent him therefore the more rapidly, or your King James says carefully, but speedily, that when you see him, you may rejoice. I'm going to have less sorrow because I know you're not overburdened about him. You will all get together. It won't bother me as much now that, that you know, there's separation. Verse 29, receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness. Hold such in reputation. These are both imperatives. They're both commands. It means to welcome somebody warmly is the idea. It means to give honor to somebody, to lift them up, to elevate them. Do you do that with your friends? Do you honestly elevate those individuals? Do you compliment, as a godly friend, your spouse? Do you compliment, as a godly friend, to your family members? Do you compliment your co-workers that you're, who are believers and you're trying to help them in the Lord? Do you thank those who teach your kids? Do you thank those who take time to minister to you? Do you tell your friends where you really value them and parts of their encouragement that have made an, in, made an impact? You know, what do you say when a certain friend isn't around and their name comes up and they, there's conversation? You as a godly friend, what do you say about them? Positive or criticism? You know, it's easy. It's easy to do this. Well, I'm going to start. Okay. You look around today. Who are you going to be a godly friend to? Now, I know what some of you are thinking. I'm not going to say anything because then it'll feel like it's not real because he preached about it and think, people are going to think I'm phony. So that means if that's the right attitude, none of us will say a word as we walk out of this building. If we mean to be godly friends to one another, let's do it. Let's start. Yeah, we talked about it today. Let's do it biblically. 
Let's learn to encourage one another instead of just, yeah, how you doing? How you doing? Let's stop. Let's talk. Let's build one another up. You know, Paul is a great example here of friendship, but he is not the epitome of friendship. Who is it? It's Jesus Christ. Oh, there's songs written about him. J. Wilbur Chapman wrote this one. After 51 years of serving the Lord, he wrote this song. He had already experienced a lot of difficulty. His first two wives had died. His eldest child died. He's in a church in Philadelphia, and as a result, afterwards, those, going through those trials, his ministry seemed to be just exuberantly blessed. 8,000 people got saved within a few years of his ministry. And he wrote, despite all the hardship he went through, he wrote these words, Jesus, what a friend for sinners. Read through the song. You get an autobiography of him. You see how it goes from challenges to a place of comfort and rejoicing in Jesus Christ. There's an individual who wrote this song. What a friend we have in Jesus. Talk about trials in his life. Young man Joseph Scrivener lived up in the upper state of New York and in Canada. When he was a young man of 20, 23 or 24 years old, he was engaged. The day before the wedding, his, his fiancée died. She drowned when they were out swimming. So he was really, really troubled. He went up to Canada for a period of time, ministered up there, got reengaged a few years later. The, the week before they got married, that woman died. Talk about heartache. Then, a couple years later, as he is still trying to get his bearings in life and, and go through those difficulties, he gets, an, he gets a letter, I almost said email, he got a letter from England from, that his mother was dying. So he penned out a poem. The poem was, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. Now, now this fellow went through all kinds of dark times, but his life came to a point where he is saying, Jesus is the best of friends. Jesus is the anchor that we need. And so we look and we say, okay, truly godly friend? Let's examine this by what we've already said this morning. Does Jesus put God first? He surely did. Did he seek to help others out? Yeah. Did he go out of his way to help people spiritually? Yes. He left the glories of heaven to come to this earth so that he could provide a way of escape for you and I from the damnation of our sins. He who was God Almighty became a babe, went through life, allowed people to crucify him to provide forgiveness for you and me. What a friend. What a friend to lay down his life for sinners. Oh, yay, what did he say? For a good man, some might lay down their life, but for sinners, Jesus did. Jesus laid down his life for you and for me so we could have forgiveness, so we could know we're on our way to heaven, that we might know that if we were to pass out of this life, we will pass into glory. These things have I written that you may know that you have eternal life. What a friend. What a friend to you to me. Friend, did he, does he reciprocate when we try to communicate with him? Sure he does. Does he share his concern and care for us? Sure he does. He puts you in places like this where you hear the word of God. He gives you tracts. He gives you opportunity. You hear about his love and how precious you are. Does he appreciate and commend his friends? Sure he does. In fact, some of you are going to hear that, that commendation that is going to be just absolutely fabulous when he says, well done thou good and faithful servant. What a friend. What a friend we have in Jesus. You know what that means? We need to take advantage of what he offers us. There's that painting that many of you have seen. And it's based on Revelation, about Jesus standing at the door and knocking. And the idea that I want to be close to you. I want to have fellowship with you. But on this painting... You all know this. What's missing? The knob on the outside. He, Jesus offers you friendship, but it is up to you to say, come into my life. It is up to you to invite him into your life, to take him as your savior. You are not to die. You are not to put that off. That's why we would say the greatest gift you could get this Christmas is the friendship of Jesus Christ. If you have never taken his offer of forgiveness, this is the day you should do that. Behold, today is the day of salvation. Now is the accepted time. You need to call upon Christ. You need to ask him to be your savior. But let me close with this thought. You need to be someone. This is Paul. 
You need to be someone who takes advantage of the time and opportunities to develop these friendships. He is saying to these people as he writes, he is talking, he says, I trust the Lord, I want to come quickly to you. As soon as possible, I want to be there. I want to do what I can to even foster this relationship more and more and more. I want to do this. I, I, I want to get there. I'm going to send others, but I'm trying to be there. I want to be with you people. I'm sending Epaphroditus quickly or carefully in your King James. I am going to come myself. Why? He's taking advantage of what opportunities he has. He can't move at that moment because he's in jail. But as soon as he's out, he says, I'm going to head your way. He's taking advantage. I take you back to what we said a few minutes ago. It is one thing for us to sit here and talk about it. It is totally another for you to actually do something about what we talked about this morning. And not just think about it, but to actually do something. There was a teacher who wanted to help her students to develop friendships. And so this teacher in this junior high class decided that what she would give for a lesson, that she would write down all the names of the kids on pieces of paper. And she left blanks under each one. She gave all the students in the class the papers that had all the names of the rest of the students but not their own name on it. And she says, here's your assignment over the next hour. I want you to write on that piece of paper underneath the name of your classmates something you, you appreciate about them. Just something. Write it down. Well, she got all the papers, they got it, collected them, they turned them in, and then her personal assignment was she transferred everything that so-and-so wrote about this person, she transferred from all those sheets to this one sheet with that person's name. Did the same thing for every guy, every gal in her class, and then the next day she gave them the sheet that had all of their classmates' comments. Then when writing about it later, here's what the response was. Before long, the entire class was smiling. Really? She heard somebody whisper. I never knew that I meant anything to anyone in this room. Uh, quote, I didn't know others even liked me. And there were many other such comments. No one ever mentioned those papers in class again. She never knew if they discussed them after class with their parents, but she didn't care. The exercise had accomplished its purpose. The students became happier with themselves and with one another. That group of students moved on. But several years later, one of the students was killed in Vietnam. The teacher attended the funeral of that special student. The church was packed with friends, and one by one, those who loved him took a last walk by the coffin. The teacher was the last one to do so. As she stood there, one of the soldiers who acted as a pallbearer came up to her and said, excuse me, somebody said you were Mark's math teacher. She nodded. Mark talked an awful lot about you. After the funeral, most of Mark's former classmates, they were there at the luncheon, and Mark's mother and father were there as well, and they started talking to the teacher. And they said, we want to show you something. The father, in taking out of, the wall, out of his own wallet, he says, they found this on Mark. He had it in his fatigues. He had it when he died. We thought you might want to see it. You would recognize it. Opening up the paper, it was two worn pieces of notebook paper that had obviously been taped, folded, and refolded many times. The teacher knew without looking at the paper it was the ones that she had listed all the good things that Mark's classmates had said about him. Mom and Dad, thank you so very much for doing that. As you can see, Mark treasured those comments. All of the Mark's former classmates by this time had seen what was happening and came up. They started to gather. Charlie rather sheepishly said, I still have my list. It's in the top drawer of my desk at home. Chuck's wife said, Chuck made me put it in our wedding album. Marilyn piped up, she says, I have mine too, it's in my diary. Vicki, another classmate, reached into her pocketbook, took out of her wallet, and showed the worn, frazzled list to the group. She says, I carry it with me all the time. Vicki said, without batting an eyelash, she said, I think we all saved our lists. The teacher was thrilled, but she sat down and cried. They all cried together, knowing that they would never be able to say anything more to mark again, but they took time to rehearse with their friends. Comment at the end of the story, tell those you love why you appreciate them while you can. That's a Christmas gift that is treasured. You need to do that. You need to give biblical friendship.